0: If you have your Bible, would you turn with me, please, to the Gospel of John. Lord willing, the message this morning will be what I have titled, The Greatest Text of All. We'll talk about that in a moment or two. In the next two Sundays, I want to bring messages on the greatest question of all. And then also another message on the greatest incentive of all. Now, I realize when I say the greatest that that's subjective. But uh, I, I really believe in my heart that if the texts that I have chosen are not the greatest, uh, they're pretty close to it. So with that thought in mind, we're going to bring a message this morning on John 3:16. Some might wonder why I've asked you to turn your Bible. And I hope that at least some of my reasoning for that will, will be evident. John 3.16 is perhaps the best known verse in the Bible. Now, maybe Psalm 23, but, uh, you know, the, as I said, uh, the, the title of my message is The Greatest Whatever, uh, are subjective. But certainly John 3.16 is perhaps the best known verse in all the Bible. Many who've never held the Bible in their hand, Uh, Many who've never even seen a Bible know John 3.16. And many who've never been been in a church or been acquainted with a church know some of John 3.16. Not only is it the best known, but it is also claimed as the favorite text of untold thousands of people. An Australian pastor, a gentleman by the name of F.W. Borum, delivered a message on John 3.16 on one occasion and he entitled it, Everybody's Text. And I think he was right. It's one of the first verses that we teach our children when they come to church and Sunday school. And it is often found on the lips of aged and dying saints. It is said of Martin Luther that shortly before his homegoing that he repeated three times the words of John 3.16. Given all of this, how in this world could any pastor hope to add something that is significant and worthwhile to the thoughts that have already been expressed across time on John 3.16? In my judgment, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. And he acknowledged that he couldn't add anything. This was a number of years ago he said this when he was living and preaching. He said he could add nothing to what had already been added and given with respect to John 3.16. But then he added, he went on to say, but I preach on it once every year no matter what. And when someone asked him why he did that, he said, well, he said, when someone comes to faith in Christ, he said, and I'm preaching on John 3, 16, he said, it reassures me that this is God's work and not the preacher's. And he was he was right. People come to faith, it's God's work. It's not the preacher's work. God is pleased to use preachers to, to bring the message. But apparently D.L. Moody was in... Uh, some similar t- set of circumstances. There's a story told about D.L. Moody. When he was traveling in Britain, he went to here and met a young preacher by the name of Henry Morehouse. And while visiting the young man, Moody said, well, if you're ever in Chicago, let me know. I'd like to have you to preach to our congregation. Now, Moody would later say... That was probably an expression of his, much like a lot of people, when you leave someone, when you park company with someone, you say, come see us. And sometimes you mean that, but sometimes you may not. Uh, if everybody came to see us that we said, come see us, I have a feeling that we'd stop saying that. <laughs> and that was something of the, the manner in which Moody said this to Henry Morehouse. Well, Moody comes back home to Chicago, didn't think any more about it. Several months later, he got a telegram from Henry Morehouse. He said to D.L. Moody, I'm in the States. When would you like me to come to the church and preach? Well, Moody felt like he was committed for sure. And so in his schedule, there was a time coming up when he was going to be out of town for a few days. And so Moody responded to Henry Morehouse and gave him the dates and said, You come and preach here at the church. That took place. Moody was out of town. The young minister came to the pulpit and was preaching every night on John 3.16. Every Every night. He had started on Sunday, and uh, he was still preaching when Moody got back to town Thursday. Well, as preachers are wont to do, when they're out of town and their wives are in the service, they will raise the question, well, how's the preaching been? And Moody's wife looked at him and said, Dwight, He's a whole lot better preacher than you are. (laughs) And on that Thursday night, Moody went to church and listened as the young man continued on John 3.16. Dale Moody said that brought home to him, that message on John 3.16 brought home to him more than anything else he could remember, the fact that God loves men and women. John 3.16 is a remarkable text. I think preachers, though, feel a lot like Mr. Spurgeon. What in the world can be added to John 3.16 that hadn't already been said? But we continue to preach on it nonetheless. Would you pray with me? Lord, in our pride, we try to disguise our spirituality and give the impression that we know everything there is to know about John 3.16, and sometimes we wonder, why would a preacher preach on John 3.16? I know all there is to know about it. I pray that you would forgive our sinful pride and show us that no matter how much we know about John 3.16, we've only scratched the surface. May God, the Holy Spirit, touch our hearts and give to us illumination and insight into your precious word and into this precious promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning I'll follow an outline, three points. The greatest fact, that is God so loved the world. The greatest result, that he gave his son. And the greatest purpose that people might have eternal life. I want to begin with the greatest fact, that is, God so loved the world. First of all, I would suggest that there are a couple of things we need to pick up out of this phrase. One is the source of this love. God so loved the world is what the text says. But if you'll just look at the verse in your Bible, if we begin our consideration, if we begin our thinking about John 3.16 with the second word, then we have missed something that will help us understand and see why we have John 3.16. The cause, if you please, of John 3.16 is in verses 14 and 15. Look at verse 14 with me. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes, in, whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then we have 3.16. The source of the love. What is the source of this love that's spoken of in John 3.16? Well, it is God. Now, may I ask you a question and ask you to think about it? What concept of God do you have? When you hear the word "God," when you hear John 3:16 or any other passage, or when you think about God, what comes to your mind? What are your thoughts about who God is and about what this is all about? You know, the concept that some have about God. To me, is not only mind-boggling, but it is somewhat frightening. For some, God is no more than a cosmic Santa Claus. He sits somewhere behind the clouds, we don't know exactly where and we simply go to Him with arms outstretched, palms up, and expect him to give us whatever we might ask. That's all God is. For some, it's even more horrifying, at least it would be to me. For some, there's no such thing as God. There's no such person as God. For others, God is a kindly old southern gentleman. He's got white, wavy hair, wears a white suit, reminiscent of Colonel Sanders. But this type of God that's in some's mind you usually seated in a rocking chair and he simply winks at sin and pats people on the head and, say, and says to them, oh, that's okay. That's their concept of God. Who is God? Do we know do we really know who God is? Just a few thoughts. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, along with the Son and the Holy Spirit, form the triune God. He is the supreme ruler. He is characterized by perfect and complete holiness and purity. He is a living, personal spirit, Worthy of our whole soul's trust, faith, adoration, and love. He is separate from the world, yet he's continually active in the world. He is unlimited by space, and yet he created everything and sustains everything. He's beyond time, but he is related to time and to history. And all God's people said... He is a free, loving, and infinite spirit. That's part of who God is. And He is the source of this love. In your worship folder this morning, I included uh, a rather lengthy note that I want to, to read It's from a Princeton theologian, and I I, I am of the opinion that the the old Princeton theologians were the best ever. This man was named Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. In writing about John 3.16, and particularly the concept of God and the importance of that, Warfield says, and this is rather long, and usually I wouldn't read this much uh, for a quote in a, in a worship service, but it seems appropriate, it seems fitting. Warfield said, We shall not make the slightest step forward in understanding our text, that is John 3.16, for instance, so long as we permit ourselves to treat the great term God merely as the subject of the sentence. When we pronounce the word we must see to it that our minds are flooded with a great sense of God's infinitude, of His majesty, of His ineffable exaltation, of His holiness, of His righteousness, and of His flaming purity and stainless perfection. This is the Lord God Almighty, whom the heaven of heavens cannot contain and whom the earth is less than a small dust in a balance. Appareled in majesty, girded with strength, righteousness, and judgment are the foundations of his throne. He sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. It is this God, a God of whom to say that he is the Lord of all the earth, is to say so little that it's easy to say nothing at all of whom our text speaks. I, I am really drawn to those words, and I hope that you will read them again uh, more slowly than I and meditate on what B.B. Warfield is saying and the truth of it. The source, first thing we want to look at, the source of this love is God. Second, the object of this love is the world well that leads to the question what's the world what is the world well to answer that question biblically we would have to take the concordance and look up every time in the concordance the word world is used and then look at the background uh, look at the context and determine the meaning obviously we do not have time to do that So, if you will simply let me suggest that John, as he writes, uses the word in different ways. In John 3.16, the term world, as it is used here by John, is not a term of the scope of the world. He's not looking at the scope. It is a term of intensity. Its Its primary connotation is ethical. The way John uses it, world is a synonym for all that is evil. There's nothing in the world to attract the love of God. May I say that again? There's nothing in our world, nothing that we know of in this world, that would attract the love of God. But our text insists that God loves the world. And therein lies the ground of all of our comfort and all of our hope. God loves the world. The Bible is primarily saying here that God loves sinners. God loves sinners. You will find no mystery so great as that. You will find no marvel as great as that. The great and good God, who's completely righteous, who's perfect, who is unsullied in any way, who recoils at any hint of impurity, and yet he loves sinners. I'm not sure we can wrap our minds around that, at least not completely. Nothing attractive in this world to uh, to, to call forth his love. And yet God loves the world, and God gave his son to die for men and women who are sinners. That's what John 3.16 is all about. The love of God is such that it can embrace people in all-out rebellion It encompasses people who are his enemies. You remember the Apostle Paul? God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he loved us and he died for us. Dear people, um, you know how hard it is for us as human beings to love folks that don't like us. to love people who are our avowed enemies. And you can apply that to a global situation as well. Some folks have an aversion to missions because of the people that missionaries go to. But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. And sometimes, is it not true that... uh, Even those close to us might say something and we might get angry with them and stay angry with them for a long period of time. But God gave his love to us. He sent his son while we were yet sinners. We were sinners. And he loved us and gave his son. The source of the love is God. The object of the love is the world. The measure of the love is encapsulated in, in that little word, so. God so loved the world. When Greek-speaking people wanted to emphasize a word in a sentence, they moved it in the sentence structure toward the first of the sentence. And this little word here is moved forward in the language, For so God loved the world. It's emphatic and it expresses the depth of his love. He so loved the world. The measure of his love that expresses its depth. He loved us. We were not attractive to him, nothing about us was attractive to him but he loved us and sent his son to die for us. Would you let that just kind of wash through your brain? He so loved us while we were sinners that God sent his love in the person of his son, and his son died for us. All right. The greatest fact God so loved the world second the greatest result he sent his son he gave his son the term that's used in verse 16 is only begotten only begotten that means that means his unique son God had one son he sent him to die for sinners again, I say, reflects the character of his love. This is not a vague love. It's not a, 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 an emotional type love. It is not a sentimental type love. It, his was a love that was costly. He gave his son. He gave the thing that was most precious to him. You remember when, back in Genesis 22... Abram was called to sacrifice his son. He prepared for that act. But God intervened. And what did God do? He provided a lamb. But when God the Father, with God the Father, his son was the lamb. His son. Was the Lamb. There was no intervention there, like there had been with Abraham. God gave us his son, and his son was sacrificed. Some like to read John three sixteen this way. For so loved God the world that he gave everlasting life. You ever heard John three sixteen? Quoted that way. For so God loved the world that he gave everlasting life. May I say to you, that could not be. That could not be. There cannot be redemption without the payment of a price. And the son sacrificed his life. His son paid the price. God gave us his son. His son paid the debt. Not for himself, but he paid the debt for sinners. I don't know how to even begin to to think about reversing or changing or in any way ameliorating it, but I think we're too familiar with it. To be a sinner, you know what that is? To know that Jesus was God's son. To know that God gave his son to die. Well, we've looked at uh, the greatest fact. We've looked at the greatest result. Third point this morning is the greatest purpose. The greatest purpose. And that is that believing sinners might have eternal life. That believing sinners might have eternal life. There's a negative and a positive there. You know the verse, should not perish. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Should not perish is negative. Have eternal life. That's the positive please observe, I beg you, please observe, there is no neutral here. Look at it again. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Perish or have eternal life. There's not a middle ground. We are either in possession of eternal life or we are perishing now and all the way to eternal perdition. We really don't know as much as we think we do about the depth of John 3.16, do we? Oh, we can quote it, and sometimes very glibly. And we do teach it to our children, and I believe we should. We should rejoice when we hear it on the lips of an aged and dying saint. We should rejoice. But we've only scratched the surface. At best, we've only scratched the surface. Consider two things. There is in the text an essential requirement. An essential requirement. Whosoever believes. question: Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Whoever believes has life? The second thing I would ask you to consider is that there is here an unlimited invitation. The text says, "Whosoever believes will be saved. That's unlimited, folks. We can, as believers ourselves, we can offer the gospel to someone else with the full assurance if they believe, they'll be saved. It's not if you believe, you might get to heaven. It's firm. It's sure. Couldn't be any more sure. Whosoever believes will be saved. A.T. Pearson was a fine um, Presbyterian writer, thinker, a man who was keenly interested in missions. In one of his sermons, A.T. Pearson tells a story about a man whose name was Hunt who went to Tahiti at the beginning of the 19th century as a missionary. Other missionaries had been there for 15 to 20 years before him, but there was not one single convert And all of Tahiti. Idolatry, sensuality ruled the islands. The missionaries that were there, along with Mr. Hunt, finally completed the translation of the Gospel of John. And one day Mr. Hunt was reading the Gospel of John to the natives. And he came across and read John 3.16. And when he did that, the tribal chief stopped him from reading. Asked him to read it again. Hunt did. And then the tribal chief said, That may be true of whites, but here in these islands, we have no such God of love as that for us. Mr. Hunt took the word Whosoever and explained it again to the natives. The native chieftain finally said, I understand. And then he added these words. And this is the way it was recorded. If that is true, then your book, that he was reading, the Bible, shall be my book. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And your heaven will be my home. That native chieftain believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was the first convert in the islands of Tahiti. To receive everlasting life, one must believe In God's only begotten Son. It's really simple. God loved and God gave. Christ died. We believe in Him. And we have, present tense, we have eternal life. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. With me, please. Jesus loves me the Bible, <clears throat> little ones to him belong, they but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Pray with me, <clears throat> Father. Forgive us for our pride in thinking that. Well, we've heard John three sixteen. We can quote John three sixteen. We know about all there is to know about it. Forgive us, Lord. We've at very best. As long as we've heard about John three sixteen, at the very best, we've only scratched the surface. There's a depth there that is all but unfathomable. Thank you for those blessed and wonderful words. Thank you for the truth that exists therein. That God loves sinners that God gave his son to die for sinners and that whosoever believes in him will be saved. Father, I pray that regardless of how many years we've memorized, had this verse memorized, that the Spirit of God would speak to our hearts. Help us to study more deeply. Help us to love you more. Help us to share this wonderful message with others that we come into contact. Perhaps those those in our family even. Uh, Those that we work with. Our neighbors. What a blessed and wonderful truth. Speak to us. Teach us more by thy spirit about the love of God. And the redemption. That's available in his son. Thank you father for your word. I pray that you would make us more and more. A people of your book. Of your word. And if there's someone here this morning. Who's never trusted Jesus as savior. I pray that. They might do business with you. They might believe today. In Jesus' name, amen. The invitation here in the church is closing. But the Lord's invitation is always open. You get to your car and you you want to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, do it. He's there. He cares and he loves. If you've never trusted Christ and you get home, do business with the Lord there. There's some place in your home where you usually go to pray, where you read his word. Go there and sit down. Tell the Lord what's on your heart. Trust him. May God bless you as you leave this place today. God go with you. He loves you. You leave holding that truth in your heart and in your mind. And don't let it get away from you. God loves me. And he gave his son to die for me. Alan Cotton is our deacon of the day. Alan comes to dismiss us with prayer. We'll sing, God be with you, till we meet again. Alan? Thank you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to be here today to lift up your holy name, to sing praises of you, to hear the word, to tell others about you, to embrace each other, to encourage each other. Uh, to uh, lead it, uh, lead others, Father, to you, to our wonderful Savior. Help us, Lord, to go about these days telling others about you. Help us, Lord, in everything we do and everything about us. We pray, and we'll give you all the glory, Father. And we, Lord, today we uh, pray for the missions of Salome in Burlington. We pray you will bless that missionary, those missions. Lord, be with us and guide us as we leave. Thank you for the word today. We love you, praise you, and thank you for everything you do in our lives. Direct us and guide us, and may you have all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.